Our scripture for this morning comes from Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I found a prayer this morning uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that I'm going to read. Dear God, we thank you for the inspiration of Jesus. Grant that we will love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even our enemy neighbors. And we ask you, God, in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent, and chaotic in detail, to be with us in our going out and our coming in, in our rising up and in our laying down, in our moments of joy and in our moments of sorrow, until the day when there shall be no sunset and no dawn. Amen. Have a good Sunday. All right. 99 years ago, on this day in our city, a group of white rioters began violently attacking black Tolsons, setting fire to homes and businesses. And this was not just some kind of large-scale fist fight. This attack was carried out both on the ground and from private aircraft. It destroyed more than 35 blocks of one of the wealthiest, wealthiest groups of black businesses in the country called Black Wall Street. The white rioters destroyed 23 churches, including Mount Zion Baptist Church, a church building that had only been opened for two months, and it burned to the ground. And you'd think in a situation like that that the debt would be forgiven, that insurance would cover the bills. No, the church continued to pay the mortgage on that building that had been, paid, that had been purchased and built and opened for two months for decades more than 10,000 black Tulsans were left homeless and hundreds were dead. And only in the last year has the city of Tulsa officially commissioned a study to identify the possibility of mass graves. The city of Tulsa has skeletons in its closet. I want to ask all of you who are listening now and who may listen later, how would you feel if the events of 99 years ago had directly affected your family, how would you feel if it had been your grandfather or your grandmother or your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother who had perished in the Tulsa race massacre? How would you feel if it had been your church that had been burned to the ground or your business that had been destroyed? And then how would you feel if no one in your lifetime made an effort to make it right? And then how would you feel if no one for generations in your city even heard that the event occurred? And that's the reality that many Tulsans and many Oklahomans grow up never knowing that this scourge is on our city, that this is a part of the story of the city of Tulsa. 99 years ago today, it began. In February, a young black man named Ahmaud Arbery went on a jog at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he, he ran past a white man named Gregory McMichael who saw Arbery and thought that he matched the description of a burglar. And so he called to his son, and the two of them hopped in a truck and chased him down. 
And McMichael had a 357 Magnum and a shotgun. They pulled up to Arbery. They confronted him, and they shot him dead in the street at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then, to add insult to injury, no charges were filed, and nobody was arrested until nearly three months later on May 7th when a, a, a bystander released footage of the event and there was public outrage. How would you feel if it had been your son who went out on a jog just to blow a little steam that day and your son never returned home because he was jogging while black? How would you feel if that were a family member of yours just going out on a jog and three months later an arrest was finally made after 90 days of silence. Last Monday, a black man named George Floyd was picked up by Minnesota police, Minneapolis police, having evidently matched the description of a person who was passing fake bills. And the officer pinned Floyd to the ground, putting his knee in the back of his neck, and a bystander's footage shows Floyd politely saying, officer, I can't breathe. Please, please, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And for nine minutes, his neck was pinned to the ground as people watched this public execution until medics came picking up his limp body from the ground, and he was later pronounced dead. How would you feel if that man were not just some guy on the news, but that was your son, or that was your brother, or that was your dad, or your uncle? How would you feel? In the last 10 days in Tulsa, Miracle and Tony Crook, who are two and three years old, went missing. And we've seen the surveillance footage of these toddlers walking alone in a convenience store, and later the footage of them walking from their apartment down toward a river, never to emerge from those steps. Just little kids. I want to thank and honor the Tulsa police who spent a week scouring the city, scouring every possible place these children could be prayerfully and desperately looking for our kids. Days later, two little bodies were found in the Verdigris River near Wagner. How would you feel if those were not just some kids in the news, but your kids or your grandkids or your neighbor kids? And how would you feel if all of the things that I've just described happened to people who shared your skin color uniquely? And things like this and, and much more have been happening daily and weekly and monthly and annually for decades and even centuries, going back to America's original sin, participation in the slave trade where Africans were forced from their homes, thrown onto ships, and involuntarily thrust into a life of slave labor. And then how would you feel if generations later, decades later, centuries later, it felt like things were not getting better, they were staying the same? How would you feel, and what might that motivate you to do in response to how you felt? In 2020, the daily experience of many people of color is drastically different than the daily experience of white folks in our country. And if events like Arbery and Floyd were isolated, they would still be gut-wrenching. But these stories are not isolated. These stor stories are disturbingly common. 
They're frequent, they are public, they are systemic, and they reveal a deep and festering wound of, of, of racism and racial violence in our country, of prejudice and the idolatry of ethnic nationalism. And right now in our country and in our city, we are seeing the pain of that wound on display as people are marching and rioting because they're hurt, because they're frustrated. How would you feel if you were in their shoes? What's especially troubling to me as a Christian and just as a person What's troubling to see is throughout history and throughout the history that is being written in this moment is the number of people who call themselves Christian, who hurl racial epithets and engage in hateful and mean speech and even actively add fuel to the fire of racial tension or, which is sometimes even more hurtful, taking a defensive or an unrepentive, unrepentant, indifferent, or callous posture toward these issues. And there are Christians who would say, look, pastor, don't talk about politics. Just preach the gospel as if God doesn't hear the voice of a mother crying for her son who has been lost. As if God doesn't notice the anguish of a child who just wants to go out and play in the street but is scared to because of the color of her skin. Or as if God doesn't notice the pain and the anguish of a man who just wants to go burn a little steam and take a jog but is afraid that it might cost him his life. There are people who say that they are disciples of Jesus Christ, but by their actions, by their lack of, of empathy and compassion, by their tone and insensitivity, demonstrate that they are in fact disciples of their politics, disciples of inflammatory hate mongers, and disciples of the religion of ethnocentric deistic nationalism. So the Church of Cornerstone to the Church of Jesus Christ, I would say racism is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Racial violence and hate speech are incongruent and antithetical to the way of Jesus who commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love our neighbors, or love our enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us. And an uncharitable and an unmerciful spirit is ill-fitting to a person who has known and experienced for themselves the love of God in Jesus Christ who laid down his life for those who were killing him. The Apostle John said this in 1 John. He said, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Talk about an unambiguous explanation there. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. 1 John 4, 20. There's a quote by a black liberation theologian named James Cone. He, he, he wrote this in the 1960s. Imagine everything going on in the world at this moment. And this quote has been really disturbing me this week. He said, while churches are debating whether a whale actually swallowed Jonah, the state is enacting inhuman laws against the oppressed. It matters little to the oppressed who authored Scripture. What is important is whether it can serve as a weapon against oppressors. Does our faith matter in the real world? The stuff that we do in here, all the conversations that we have, 
does it actually have bearing in what happens out there? Does that bearing on our politics, on our social action, on our prayer life, on our relational life, does the stuff that we talk about in here matter for the real world? It better. In one way or another, it better. And in increasing measure, it better. Or we're just, it better, or we're just play acting. We just have a little tea party. We're just a nice little social club where we pat each other on the back, which is very, very different than the call of Jesus to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him. To become his co-worker in announcing and enacting that the kingdom of heavens has broken into our world through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. As a result of which, forgiveness is possible. Reconciliation is possible. Restoration is possible. A new, renewed, and renewing community is coming to life in this world of death because of what happened in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And that community has work to do. Rushing in as grievers and healers to the deepest pain points in our world. Joining Jesus and standing between the throne and the throngs of the hurt and the lost in our world as intercessors and laborers for justice and healing and peace. And yet, in these moments, we often either fail to pray or we pray selfishly, God bless me, protect me, meet my every need, drifting so far from the prayer lives of Christians past, people like St. Francis who prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Ninety-nine years ago on this day, the Tulsa Race Massacre. Many more years than that ago, a group of ethnic Jews, about 120 of them, got together in an upper room. Jesus, 40 days earlier, had been resurrected against expectation, and he said, wait in Jerusalem for the gift my Father is going to send you. And on that day of Pentecost, where the Jews remembered the giving of the law, the, the Father lavished on his people the Spirit to enable them to live like Jesus in the world. He told them, it is better that I go away. And if I go away, my Father will send to you another advocate, another comforter, the Spirit, the paraclete. And you're going to do even greater things than what I've done. And those ethnic Jews, as the Spirit descended and tongues of fire lit above them, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. 
And out in the streets of Jerusalem gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost, men and women representing all the ethnic groups under heaven could hear the voices of these ethnic Jews declaring the wonders of God in their own language. And it began to become clear what had been true from the beginning, that God's heart was for people of every tribe and nation and people, every language, every color. That the election of ethnic Israel had not been for Israel as an end in itself. It was not because God favored one race at the expense of all the others, but that God had chosen this particular people to embody the message of hope and salvation of liberation ultimately revealed in in the person of Jesus Christ for the benefit of all the nations of the world, for the benefit of every colored person in the world. One was blessed for the many, to be a conduit of blessing for the many. As the Spirit descended on the church at Pentecost, the church began to be persecuted, and their preaching, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, caused a lot of fruit to grow, and the church began to spread. And as the church spread and grew, they diversified. And to the bewilderment of Roman society, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women began to regard and treat one another as family, even giving each other the familial name of brother and sister. They began sharing their homes, sharing their income, sharing their goods, so that it could be said of the church that there were no needy people among them. Was it easy? Was it natural? No. It took the Spirit. It took discipline. It took time and attention. It took repentance and healing. It took unlearning habits, unlearning bias to love and regard one another through the perspective of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, from now we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We see everyone as an object of the, of the reconciliation, of the conciliatory efforts of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his incarnation. It all started on Pentecost, and it all started as they were praying, waiting on the Spirit in the upper room. If you've not been part of our church, uh, this year we're teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters of the Bible. It's some of the most profound, mind-blowing, challenging, emptying, and refilling text that's out there. People of all faiths, are, 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 their minds are blown by the words of Jesus and the kind of community that he envisioned in the church. And for eight months this year, we're walking through Matthew 5 through 7. In chapter 6, Jesus begins getting at the issue of motivation for religious action. Last week, we talked about giving. Today, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the issue of prayer. And here in in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, as Brian read, Jesus says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, the actors on the stage, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, the applause they get at the end is their reward in full. But when you pray, something he assumes you're going to do, go into your room, close the door, And pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This last phrase is one that's echoed throughout the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in chapter 6. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
We've been talking about the issue of cultivating a rich secret life. Having such, such a strong inner life, subterranean life that other pe- people can't see, that it can actually bear the weight and the glory of our outer lives. Wanting to be like an iceberg where people just see a little bit of the goodness of what God has done in our lives, but there is this mass underneath that's supporting the little that people can see. By contrast, we have the image of, of, of a sinkhole where the, the inner life is just depleted and empty, and it can't support the outer life, and so things cave in. Jesus says we don't want to be that way in our prayer life. When you pray, do it secretly, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus knows that there's no time to waste in praying to be a show-off. It's praying to impress other people with our spirituality or leave them awestruck with our eloquence. There's no time to waste because there's holy work to be done. So when you pray, something he assumes we're going to do, go into your room, shut the door, and do your secret and subversive work of inviting the kingdom of the heavens to break into those places where we live and work and play. And beyond explanation, all throughout the Scripture and throughout Christian experience, something happens when God's people pray. Sometimes God does stuff that we couldn't have seen coming when His people pray. Moses prayed on behalf of Israel when they had been in rebellion and God was ready to bring down the hammer of wrath on them. And God stayed His wrath because He heard the prayer of Moses. Hezekiah prayed when Israel was being routed by the Assyrians and God showed up and bore his arm on behalf of his people. Nehemiah prayed on behalf of Judah and Jerusalem whose walls had been destroyed and the people were living in shame and God mercifully gave him access to a person of power and gave him the opportunity to rebuild the walls of the city and the dignity of the people. Daniel prayed while he was in exile in in, in Babylon, and God did miraculous work through Daniel. In fact, Daniel chapter 10 tells us how God dispatched angels to assist Daniel in what he was doing. In Daniel 10, the, the, the angel has come to him and says, Don't be frightened, Daniel, for your request has been heard in heaven and was answered the very first day you began to fast before the Lord and to pray for understanding. That very day I was sent here to meet you. But for 21 days, the mighty evil spirit who overrules the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the top officers of the heavenly army, came to help me so that I was able to break through these spirit rulers of Persia. The day you began to fast and pray for understanding, I was dispatched, but there was spiritual opposition. God got to work when his people prayed. The widow Anna in the first century began to pray and to fast and God granted her request and before she died she was able to meet the Messiah Jesus. Paul and Silas prayed while they were in prison and and the, the walls shook and their chains fell off and the doors opened. Cornelius prayed and God sent Peter and the gospel opened up to the Gentiles. The church, after Peter, was, Peter and John were beaten up and called before the Sanhedrin, prayed for courage and boldness and for God to stretch out his hand and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus Christ, and God did it. Time and again, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we read the people began to pray, God does stuff. 
when we started our church two and a half years ago, we, we knew that we wanted to be a community that abided in Jesus in a John 15 kind of way. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, abide in me as I abide in you, you're going to bear fruit. And so we had this vision of sowing 3,000 hours of corporate prayer into the launch of our church. And we hit 1,000 hours by the time the church launched. And I have been amazed at what God has done in our community. But I still don't think that we've seen all that God can do or wants to do through our community. And so we're leaning in to becoming people of prayer. We're just getting started. Jesus says, when you pray... I could ask you last week, I asked as a discipleship checkup question, do you give? This week I could just ask, do you pray? I think there are probably a handful of reasons why we often don't pray. One of them may be simple, it's it's we don't know how to pray. Uh, Prayer is simple on the one hand, but yet prayer takes training. It's something that you grow into. And many people give up early in their training. It's not fun to stink at something. It's not fun to to learn an instrument and and make ugly sounds when you want to make something beautiful, but to learn to train at anything, we have to be willing to stink at it for a while. Many of us give up because we don't know how to do it. We we give up early in our training and we never see a breakthrough. I have to imagine that there were a ton of people in our church as we did this 24-7 prayer vigil where uh, you you didn't sign up because you thought, I can never pray for one hour in my entire life. That's maybe the sum of what I've prayed in the last 10 years. So maybe you never signed up. Or maybe you signed up for an hour and you thought, okay, two minutes in, doing great. And by three minutes, you're tapped out. Sometimes we don't pray because we don't know how to pray. I think another reason that we don't pray is we don't think it's going to do anything. And this, this reflects a kind of functional atheism that I think all of us from time to time can be guilty of. We think about prayer less as like storming on the gates of heaven and more like just soliloquying in private, monologuing, of, of journaling, of, of thinking out loud, not as warfare, not as action. We talk about prayer flippantly and say things like, I'll pray for you, never honestly intending to actually do it. We say it just like we ask people, how are you doing? We're, we're asking not because we want to know, but because we want to be nice. We never intend, we rarely intend to put action behind those words because we don't think it's going to amount to anything. I think another reason that we don't pray is we're making it too hard. This has been my struggle. I started doing some kind of formal academic study of the Bible or theology in my undergrad, and I started overthinking everything. And this is like a thorn in my side to this day, trying to think about how to pray theologically correct more than just praying at all, making it way too hard. You're taking a sermon here, a teaching there, a lesson there, and you're trying just too hard, not pouring out our hearts to our Father who knows what we need before we ask. I overthink it. Maybe you're overthinking it. Uh, Maxie Dunham, who used to be the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, said, all the contradictions and questions and objections surrounding prayer are God's problems, not mine. Because prayer is God's idea. Sometimes we pray because we're making it, like we can't pray because we're making it too hard. You said to ask for anything and it'll be given and it hasn't been given. You say persevere in prayer and we just make it too hard. And yet Dunham says, all of that is God's problem. Your problem is to pray. Your opportunity is to pray. And I think the fourth reason many of us don't pray is you've been let down in the past. And I have too. There are things that you 
persisted in prayer. You did the whole ASK, ask, seek, knock kind of thing. You continue to persevere like the person who had the, the, the boldness to go and knock on their neighbor's door to get bread in the middle of the night so they could entertain a guest. You did all the stuff, and God didn't answer the prayer in the way that you wanted. I get it. Because we were talking about divorce a couple of weeks ago. Like, I get it. The man or the woman who's crying out to God on behalf of their spouse, change them, save our marriage, and it didn't happen. And so maybe you were disillusioned with prayer. I get it. I've been there. There's a lot of mystery in all of this, but it does seem to be the case that in prayer, in our, in our life with God, we have an information imbalance. There are things God knows, perspective that God has that we just don't, and we won't until the age to come, until the veil is lifted and we, our, our faith is made sight. Tim Keller, I think, wisely and at the same time frustratingly said this. He said, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything God knows. There are lots of reasons why we don't pray. We make it too hard. We are selfish. We've been hurt in the past. And yet there's this impulse. There's this impulse, this desire to be heard. There's this sense that there's a divine ear that still prompts us in moments of frustration or desperation to cry aloud as if God can hear. Scripture says God has put eternity on the hearts of men. There's this desire to be heard, this aching for the ear that is there but we can't see. And in spite of all of its frustrations and contradictions and the way that we've weathered the life of prayer, there's still this nudge, this impulse to be heard from on high. Jesus says, when you pray, here's how you do it. Lots of reasons not to pray, but excuses aside, Jesus assumes it's going to be explicit in the life of the believer. And so in view of our hurting world and in view of our, our weary souls, that desire, that implicit desire we have for the divine ear to hear us and to respond mercifully, if you wanted to learn to pray, how would you even do it? Uh, about a month ago, I was feeling, um, I mean, I've been like you in all of this, just kind of emotionally up and down. And I was feeling this desire to get a hit of endorphins through this thing. I think it's called jogging. 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 It's a soft J. This thing called jogging where you run on purpose and elevate your heart rate and it's supposed to make you feel better after you feel worse in the process. And so I decided to, to begin to jog systematically, and I decided I needed to do it with a couple of buddies. So I texted my friends Jake and Blake, we live on the same street, and I said, hey, I'm going to do this couch to 5K thing, do you want to do it with me? And they both said yes, and the Cool Guy Run Club was officially formed on that day. And for three or four weeks, uh, three days a week, uh, we've been doing this couch to 5K app, and it's really basic, and it just tells us what to do. Uh, start a brisk five-minute walk, and then we do that, and it tells us what to do. And every day that we run, we do the same, and yet we do a little bit more, and it gets increasingly challenging as we go along. Similarly, like, like as Paul told Timothy, we need to learn to train ourselves to be godly. Like it just doesn't happen overnight. Overnight. 
The people you know, that woman or that man that you know and you respect, and they just like embody the fruits of the Spirit. Are there a person that you would describe as like a prayer warrior or like a, a redwood of a person? They didn't become that way overnight. And so Paul said to a young pastor, Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is of some value, but spiritual training has, pays dividends in this life and in the life to come. In the same way that I need a couch to 5K to take care of our body, we need a training plan to learn, to enjoy, and to, to go through life with God. And this is where our, our desire for personal transformation and cultural transformation come together. Our desire to like be a part of the healing of what's going on out there and in there and here coalesce and it's in our prayer life. And so very briefly in just a couple of minutes, I want to give you the, the prayer version, a prayer version of Couch to 5K. A way that you can begin easing into life with God. And I think this is especially a gift for those of you who would have never signed up for an hour of prayer. Or you thought, I can't possibly pray for more than five minutes. I'm going to ask you to do even less than that as a way to start. And this is what I'm calling the 929 prayer. 929 prayer. It has bearing on all the conversations we've been having as a church this year. And it especially has bearing on everything that's going on in our world right now. Now, you've never heard of the 929 prayer, and that's because I made it up a couple weeks ago. And whether you're an expert in prayer or a novice in prayer, you can use this. And it's inspired by three 929 passages that I totally cherry-picked out of the Bible. Three, three 929 passages. And they all come from, from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 9.29, it's the story of these two blind men who are following Jesus, and they're calling out to him, have mercy on us, heal us. And Jesus asked them the question, do you believe that I can do it? They said, yes. And in Matthew 9.29, Jesus says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Let me ask you, if God acted according to your faith, so remember faith from Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see. If God answered your prayers according to your level of faith, would that be an encouraging thing? Like would anything good happen in the world? Like here's what I'm believing for you to do. If God acted according to your faith, would that be an affirming or a damning reality? Now, don't beat yourself up about how little faith you had. Jesus says if you only have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go and jump into the heart of the sea, and it'll do it. It'll be removed. Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. The first 929 prayer from Matthew 929 then is, Lord, increase our faith. Mark 9.29, it's the story of uh, this boy that had been possessed by a demon. He's foaming at the mouth and he's throwing himself into the fire. And Jesus laid hands on the disciples to go out and cast out demons in his name. And they couldn't do it. The demon inside this boy was overpowering him. And, and Jesus had to go and do the work himself. And the disciples came and said, Lord, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said and in Mark 9.29, this kind can only come out by prayer. Or other translations say, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. There was an authority that Jesus had gained through sustained prayer. Sustained periods of being in the presence of his Father. And so our second 929 prayer coming from Mark 929 is, Lord, increase our resolve. Increase our, our commitment in prayer. 
The demon of racism in our country needs to be exercised, and for one reason or another, it has not been one that we can do. Jesus said this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. And Jesus, having having prayed and having fasted, then went out and laid his hands on the, the boy and did his work. Lord, increase our resolve. Luke 9.29 is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and he's revealed in the, the, the depths of his authority, the heights of his authority. Moses and Elijah come and talk to him. And it says in Luke 9.29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. He was transformed before them as he Prayed. And so with Luke, inspired by the transfiguration of Jesus, we pray, Lord, transform us in prayer. These three verses, Matthew, Mark, and Luke 9.29, give us a trellis for the vine of our prayer life to latch on to and to begin to grow. And you can use these three passages to, to be a kind of framework for learning to pray and learning to pray simply. Use them as a starting point. Here's what I would advise you to do. I'd advise you to get out your phone and set a recurring alarm for 929. And if you have really low hopes for your commitment on this, just do 929 a.m. or 929 p.m. that you can totally do both. Make it a recurring alarm and determine that you're going to begin practicing 929 prayer. When the alarm goes off, no matter what you're doing, you're going to find a secret spot, whether it's at the stall in your bathroom, whether it's like as John Wesley's mom did, pulled her apron over her head and just found a quiet moment of prayer. At 929, you're going to find a moment to use these three passages of Scripture to begin to pray. Matthew 929, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Lord, would you increase my faith? Would you increase the kind of asks I'm making of you? Just use it as a way to just start your prayer life. Give shape to your prayer life. Mark 9, 29. This kind can only come out by fasting and prayer. Lord, help me to persevere in prayer. Help me to learn the things that can only be proven over time of walking with you, slowly going one direction. Luke 9, 29. Lord, transform us in prayer. May I be more like Jesus to the people that I live with. May I be more like Jesus as I engage with the issues of race and reconciliation in my city. Would you transform me in prayer? I think the, the benefits of going after a 929 training plan for prayer is one that you've, you begin to pray scripturally. You know that you're going to be in alignment with the will of God as you pray scriptures. Repeat the scripture and pray it. I'd urge you, secondly, to to, to pray it habitually. Do it every day. It just becomes clockwork, Pavlov's dog. When you hear that alarm, you go on your knees and you pray. The third thing I would urge you to do is you're practicing 929 prayer is to, to pray systematically. So if you can picture concentric circles around your life, pray beginning with yourself, Lord, increase my faith. Stir up faith within me. Increase my knowledge of you. And then pray for the people who are close to you, your your roommates, your friends, your spouse, your children. Pray these prayers over them. Go next to, to your friend group, to your apprentice group, to our church, over our city, over our state, over our country, over our world. Pray systematically in, in concentric circles moving outward these scriptures. God, would you stir up faith?
Would you give us resolve, the church of Jesus Christ, to have resolve to persevere in fasting and praying? And would you transform us? Pray systematically. The fourth thing I would say is to pray imaginatively. Use these verses as just a trellis that you explore. You imagine the scene in which each of them came to to be. You're imagining yourself as, as the blind man crying out to Jesus. What would it have been like to be them? Pray imaginatively and let your mind wander. And then fifth, and in keeping with the teaching of Jesus, pray secretly. Don't talk about this with other people for the most part. Like do it in your apprentice group, but even then be aware of your motivation. Pray secretly. Like for every time you feel like tweeting something, get 10 days of this under your belt. Pray secretly. Don't tweet it. Don't talk about it. Just do it. Make it part of of the rhythm of your life, your training in prayer. Start with 929 in the morning. Maybe like me, you'll cherry pick another passage of Scripture and correspond it with the time of the day. And it is a way of beginning to learn the rhythms of prayer. I will confess that it is a topic of embarrassment to me as a pastor, how much of a novice I feel like I am in prayer. Eugene Peterson, the great pastor, said something like, a pastor who doesn't pray is an embarrassment to the faith and an encumbrance, an embarrassment to the faith and an encumbrance to the church. And I read those and hurt on the inside. I'm training a couch to 5K in my prayer life with you right now. And I want to be a person who perseveres and grows in prayer. And I will say, it is not true of me now, and it is not true of us now, but with God's help, we will be a praying church. With God's help, we will abide in Jesus We will ask God to to increase our faith, to expand our imagination of what he can do so that if he does it, he will be doing more than we can ask or imagine. So that if he answers our Mark 9, 29 prayers, he's increasing our resolve. We become people who persevere in patience and we see the breakthroughs of the things that can only come out by fasting and praying. Asking him in prayer to transform us and our world that we may see the world that God has transformed. See it through renewed eyes and joining him in renewing work in all the world. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. Jesus assumed that greater things than what he did were to happen through the church. May God increase our faith that it's true. Increase our confidence that he wasn't crossing his fingers behind his back. And so we pray, God, Transform us. Increase our faith. Increase our resolve in prayer. Increase our commitment to see you tear down the walls of racism in our country and transform us as we persevere in prayer. And as our world is coming apart at the seams and we're seeing the hatred and the bias and the prejudice and the sin, the anxiety within each of us, never more than now has the world needed a praying church. So Jesus said, when you pray, you don't need to shout it from the mountaintops, but go into your room, your prayer closet, do the secret work, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Lord, would you increase our faith? Lord, would you increase our resolve? Lord, would you transform us in prayer? Would you help us to believe that it actually matters? Not that these words are magic, but that you love hearing your children talk to you. Shape us and reshape us, Lord Jesus. 
We confess how guilty we are of idolatry, how guilty we are of not listening to you or anybody else. And so we're just asking you to pour out on our church a spirit of prayer, a resolution to be people of prayer, people who count on you as if it's the only thing we've got to provide a breakthrough and then see you show up and bear your arm in power. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. As the church of God begins to pray, praying small and praying systematically, Lord, would you in your mercy send your spirit and refresh us, fill us anew. As we grow, would you entrust us with the presence of your spirit, manifest your presence through giving us words of insight, gifts of the spirit, fruit of the spirit, evidence that the Spirit is transforming us as we surrender bias and hatred and it becomes love and tenderness. Let our gentleness be evident to all. I pray over specifically the people in our church right now who struggle with anxiety and depression. I pray that a specific grace would be given them to see that anxiety diminished, even in very anxious moments in a chronically anxious country. Come, Holy Spirit, and do this work in Christ's church. Lord Jesus, I want to pray specifically over our city, over the city of Tulsa. We confess the sins of our fathers and our grandfathers. We confess the failures of those previous generations who acted on hate. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us of every evidence of hatred and bias and anger and all those things that are unbecoming to a person who loves Jesus? Would you reveal them to us? David said, who can know their own sin, their secret sin? May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. We confess the failures of previous generations of those who've loved you. May we be a generation that seeks your face with clean hands and pure hearts. I pray over everyone who, is, who has been uh, demonstrating and a part of um, events in the last weekend, Lord Jesus, that you would bring healing and unity to our city. I pray over city councilors, over Mayor Bynum, over Governor Stitt, over President Trump, over everyone who has exercises institutional authority to give them the wisdom to be agents of healing and reconciliation. And even more than that, that you would equip your church with power from on high to sow peace where there's hatred. All this is more than we can ask or imagine, Lord. So take the little mustard seed of faith or the half of it that we've got and do something great with it, Lord Jesus. We honor and love you. Bring your kingdom in Tulsa as it is in heaven. Amen.